Any prayers? We've got a number of prayers this morning. <coughs> Any prayer requests? I, I know I'm, we've got a note from Bev and all. Sue and her travels. Sue and her travels, yeah. Name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you and the gift of yourself, particularly in the Mass this morning. Um, I've been asking this question um, for a few weeks now. Where are we when we take the Eucharist? Um, <laughs> I'm not sure that we always have the courage that we should have and the joy to be with you in your kingdom. It takes a lot, I think, to take a joy. I, I, I think we're so caught by the world that we don't realize how much we turn away from joy. If we, were, um, if we took seriously that when we take you into us, we're in your kingdom with you. Even when you go out the hallway or down to the parking lot, we're with you. Strengthen us to be capable of um, experiencing a joy, full, to let none of the faults in us, the weaknesses, keep us from knowing that joy. Let it be so, truly. Um, <clears throat> I've been offering this prayer for a couple of weeks now, and I'd like to offer it again. It's one that I make myself each day. Father, help each of the women present this morning um, become the daughter that you've given her to be. Even if she feels her old age, let her know that she's your daughter. Help her to be the daughter you've given her to be. Let the men present today, all of us, become the sons you've given us to be, even in our old age. Um, Christ, you called us friends, uh, not servants, because we know you. A friend is another self. Um, help each one of us to be your friend and to love as you do. Um, um, to make a place for the humility of letting that happen. Holy Spirit, your gift. Help each of us to be a gift. Help us to put ourselves away, to give ourselves freely. So often we give ourselves to call attention to ourselves. You never give without disappearing. You make something present by disappearing. It's another thing. Not easy for us to do. Help us to do that, to be a gift. I'm going to ask a blessing on Sue and her travels. Keep her safe. Um, I hope her journey is richer for all that she's read and that she carries us with her. But keep her safe on the rest of her journey. Be with Bev. Um, and her family. I can't remember the names, Don. Michael and Kate. Michael and Kate are getting married. I know that it's a big thing for her. So bless that marriage this weekend. Um, let their commitments be full so that no matter what happens in their marriage, they will hold to their vows, um, even unto a cross. 
um, help them to give themselves to the cross that you will call them to and to grow in your love because they do it. And let Bev know joy um, in being a part of it. Um, sorry, I'm forgetting Oh, it's um, be with Sally, Suzanne's aunt. Um, surround her with your protection. Keep her safe. Help her to be healed. If um, it isn't to be, um, let her struggles um, be an occasion for her growing in faith, turning to you, giving herself over to you um, in comfort and in trust. And let those who love her carry the same thing um, if she's, if this is her time to go. Uh, let everybody at peace. Um, we all carry burdens, um, lots of them unspoken. In all things, increase our trust in you and our gladness. Um, if we take what Boethius said seriously, that there's um, no bad fortune, no matter what happens, help us to take hope in how we deal with things. Not forget that. Make it real in our lives. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. <coughs> I've got to do this. I'm, I want to read the poem um, from um, Rednati in a minute. I'm going to stay with him, but no, I'll do it. I'll do it in a minute. Um, last week, um, I read remember um, a poem from Nicholas Rondotti um, um, called Foamy Sky. Um, he's a, hung, uh, a Hungarian poet, um, Jew, who was forced into um, labor um, to serve the Jews. He was a part of construction, I think, company moving, I think, towards Austria. I'm not sure. And as as people became emaciated and weakened because they weren't fed well and and got too weak to to do the labor anymore, they were executed. Um, one of the poem that I'm going to read this morning is a description of an execution just after it happens. Shortly after that, um, Rednati himself will be executed. All the men who died when they got too weak to do this forced labor that the Germans were making them do, they were just buried in these heaps, in these uh, mass graves. Um, um, when, when the grave was exhumed, when they uncovered it, some months later, um, Renati had a notebook of poems in him. So it's only because they were on his body and found that we have some of his poems. So. Um, you remember, I mean, one of my reasons for going to this is because we're entering the modern world, and the modern world as we know it is so different from the world that we've been in in all of our literature. And I'm not just thinking about Charles Dickens or Jane Austen, both of whom I love, or the British novelists. Um, you know that um, even in, let's say, Faulkner or Eliot's Murder of the Cathedral or Shakespeare in Othello, or Anthony Cleopatra. All of those poets deal with death and violence. It's a part of what they're dealing with. Um, so it's nothing new to us. If you go back to the beginning of the Iliad. You couldn't read a page without 
experiencing ten guys getting killed with a spear going through an eye socket and the eyeball coming dangling you know out the other side or a spear going through the genitals and blood spattering on the you know the axle wheels I mean Homer was as graphic as any writer I've ever read so it's not as if we've been spared violence in the literature that we've read but the violence of the modern world is different because it's so impersonal it's so mechanical it's associated it's so associated with the machine age Hitler, in some sense, marks the turn because of his love of machinery, power, submarines, tanks, planes, bombs. We're in a different age. Um, it's an atomic age. It's more impersonal. We're closer to extinction. So even, even though killings went on and all these works, was nothing on a scale like this. And in the ancient world, when a killing went on, it was almost always personal. Achilles is engaging men, and you know from Homer's habit, he never, he never introduces a character without naming him. Killing goes on today on a mass scale, and we don't know the names of the people who die. Homer would never allow that, because Homer believed that each person had a story, each person had an identity. When he died, he was named. And in naming that person, it was conferring an honor on him. That's the nature of Homer's world. We enter the modern world, and there's this sense of anonymity of that the people aren't our people are things they can be exterminated for the sake of some higher end we're in a Machiavellian world we're in a utopian largely socialistic utopian world where um, all problems will get put away so for the sake of the state you get rid of anybody who gets in the way of that and people become numbers things Things to get out, get out of the way for the sake of a higher good. The end justifies the means, or the sorry, the yeah, the end justifies the means. The ends is this um, utopian state in which everybody will get along. So we're in a modern secular world. Okay. So last last week I I read the first poem from Rignati. If you remember, I don't want to read the whole thing again, but he was describing. Let me take some passages just to refresh your memory. It's called Foamy Sky. The moon always in a foamy sky. How strange that I'm alive. A bland, efficient death searches this age, and they turn white on whom it lays its hand. There's something in the atmosphere, and Stephen King is close to it. I don't like him. Um, Stephen King is a Manichaean. I think you all know what a Manichaean is. Manichaeans believe that there's an inherent evil in the world. It, it's infected the Protestant mind. There's an inherent evil. Ahab was touched by it. I'm going to strike through that mass to get to that that metaphysical malice, that thing behind <coughs> things. Evil, evil lurks in the world. So um, it's a part of the mo- the modern mind. I mean, all of us have to deal with that. Some of us may carry it. How strange that I'm alive, a bland, efficient death searches this age, and they turn white on whom it lays its hand. He goes on describing the shrieks of, you know, um, I have seen certain things, such things, that now the air feels dense as earth. It's palpable in the air. It's it's like King's World. You can touch it. Evil is palpable. I come to a standstill by this trunk. It stirs its thick leaves, angrily reaches a branch down for my neck. Now I'm neither weak nor cowardly, just tired, unmoving, and the branch searches my hair, terrified, mute. Such things one must forget, but I have never yet been able to forget. Foam gushes forth upon the moon. Foam. 
It's like a chemical has infected the air. Foam. Foam gushes forth upon the moon. A dark green venom streaks the sky. I roll myself a cigarette. I am slowly, carefully a living eye. It's as if the human person is set off by being a person because it has a self against this impersonal, toxic evil that pervades the world. Okay, That was the poem we did last week. The poem I want to read tonight is a really short one. It, it was called, it came from a, a collection that in some translations is called postcards. And they were notes that he wrote while he was on this forced labor march doing this work for the Germans. Um, this is postcard excuse me, postcard four. I fell beside him and his corpse turned over, tight already as a snapping string shot in the neck. And that's how you'll end too, I whispered to myself, lie still, no moving. Now patience flowers in death. Then I could hear der Sprick noch off, above and very near. Blood mixed with mud was drying on my ear. The German is the German soldier saying, I think he's, he's still breathing, and then he shoots him. So that's the poem. <coughs> I'll read it once more. Just So know that the German means, I think he's saying, he's still standing or still breathing. I fell beside him and his corpse turned over, tight already as a snapping string shot in the neck. And that's how you'll end too, I whispered to myself, lie still, no moving. Now patience flowers in death. Then I could hear der Spricknuck off above and very near. Blood mixed with mud was drying on my ear. His companion is dying next to him. So Jay's comment earlier was, I don't know how you put it, we're in, we're in a, how'd you put it? I just felt, as I'm getting through the book, I thought the Grand Inquisitor was one of the darkest pieces of, that chapter was one of the darkest chunks of literature I'd read in quite a while. Yeah. It's a dark book because we're dealing with sinister things. What, what, what um, Eliot touches on in Murdery Cathedral gets more concrete here. You can all leave right now if you'd like. <laughs> Here, I want to, before we go on, because um, I'm going to forget if I don't, and, and usually you know that I'm rushing at the end, and I'd rather not. But in light of, um, in light of what Jay says, um, a couple things for next week. I want everybody to just be aware of this. Um, oh, God. Do not tell me. Oh, please. That's so good. Um, um, next week, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back over some passages that I deal with today. Um, so just be aware of that. Um, but I want to ask some questions leading to next week.
Next week I'm going to introduce a term that will be strange, I'm sure, to everybody in class called Manipian satire. Um, and I don't want to go over it, except next week I'm going to go over these passages today. Next week I'm going to go over a couple of them. Next week I want to go back to the passage in the monastery where Zosima meets with Fyodor and Piotr and you remember Dmitri rushes in and there's a hubbub and um, people are angry. Alyosha's embarrassed. I want to I go back to that. I'm going to touch on it today for a minute, but I want to go back. And in the chapter um, um, in which we meet um, Father Fairpont, um, something happens involving him and the other priests, and I want to set those priests next to each other. So Father Pacey, Father Fairpont, the, the stranger that visits them, the monk, and um, Zosimov. So it's a look at four priests. So in both of those episodes, we're looking at a group of people. And I just want to go back to see what Dostoevsky's doing. Okay, because I think we miss a lot. So, and I want to put it in terms of this, what's called Manipian satire. Don't, don't, don't give it any thought. I just want you to know that we're going to go back. Um, a question that I'd like to have hanging over the class when we leave at the end. Um, things seemed so dark in this book and on the surface in some ways so innocent but there's a suspense building. It, we have a sense that the tension between Dimitri and um, Fyodor could lead to a blow-up at any moment. Um, they're both getting increasingly angry um, in the um, um, just before the Grand Inquisitor scene or um, no, just afterwards Ivan and um, Smerdyakov meet and talk about something about to happen. And Rakitin, you know, the, the, the sort of smug seminarian, think he, he's, he represents that quality of education that has infected so many people in the book. It makes them think they're better than other people. He carries that attitude. He talks about a prophecy when, when they leave the monastery. He thinks that um, Theodore is going to die. Demetrius is going to kill him. So there are these prophetic elements building and all of them in the direction that somebody will die. If any of you know the whole of it, if you've seen the movie or you've read the book, I, I would ask something all, of all of you. I, don't, I think it's logged. Hi, Linda. Hi, Tom. Um, where was I? Let's see. Sorry. Got a kidding. Um, prophecies and stuff. Yeah, that that those of you those of you who have uh, who've seen the movie or who've read the book or even the study guide. If you know the ending, I'd like to hold everybody to a promise here. Um, I can't put anything behind it. Um, don't tell anybody what the ending is. Because in one sense, the novel is a detective knowledge. No, I won't tell you what happens, but somebody kills somebody. So the question that I want to put to you going, going ahead is, who killed X? Leave X as an unknown right now, okay? So 
one aspect, one way of looking at this movie or the story is who killed X, okay? Because X is going to get killed. So it's a detective story, and Dostoevsky knows that. So that all, all these early hints, when Rakuten says, prophecies, prophesizes that somebody's going to be killed. And then in that chapter after the Grand Inquisitor, when, um, when, um, um, God, Ivan and Smerdyakov meet, there's this strange talk about something that's going, going to happen. And when um, Ivan, when Ivan hears it, he becomes almost violent the, the, because he thinks of himself as being a person of knowledge. And Smerdyakov's talking in a way, insinuating a knowledge when Ivan can't figure it out. So there are these subtle hints that something's going to happen. So those of you who've seen the movie or those of you who have read Cliff Notes or know the whole, please don't tell anybody else. Because I'd like those who don't know the outcome to move forward enjoying the suspense. Because there really is, Dostoevsky is consciously playing to a suspense. So one of the ways he's holding us to things, what, what's going to happen, what's he's talking about, where's it going? And then also keep this question in mind with you. Um, there will be a trial involving somebody who's accused of killing Mr. X. I'm trying to be a, There will be a trial. And both sides are going to argue, I mean, one for the defendant, one against him. Um, do both sides get it right? Who wins and why? And what is Dostoevsky showing us about the outcome of that trial? So we're moving towards a courtroom scene, just like uh, Merchant of Venice, or a good, a good courtroom drama. Um, somebody's going to be accused of something. Somebody will have died. And there will be um, legal sides arguing both positions. So look very, very closely at what they're doing, okay? That's one. Two is next week we're going to look um, closely at the Grand Inquisitor scene because it's really important for the, for the novel. So be sure if, if you've read it and, and nothing comes to mind, you just read by it. It's a, it's, it's a, to me, it's a dense, it's a really dense, confusing chapter. But if you haven't held on to any details with it, it just, things escaped you, go back and reread it. And reread the one before it called Rebellion because it's in that chapter that um, Yvonne describes his horror at um, what, what people do to children. I think, I, did, I, did I mention it last, I don't think I did last week, I think I did it on Monday night. Um, one of the things that Yvonne will say is that um, because of a comment made about comparing a human to an animal and Yvonne's response was, don't ever say that about animals. Do, do not ever say that about animals. Can animals can never be as cruel as humans. Because animals do that for life. Humans do it with a malice. And he describes Turks, one of his descriptions, Turks taking children, baby infants, nailing them by their ears to a fence and laughing while they watch the children undergo this agony. And another scene in which a, a Turk brings a, I'm assuming these are Islamic, I'm not, um, putting a gun to a, a child's head while the mother holds the child in his arm and in horror and then pausing for a moment as if he's not going to do it and the mother becoming more and more hysterical and hoping that he won't and then he pulls the trigger in. 
So Yvonne is describing these horrors that humans... Now, I'm saying that graphically. We know that in, in, in lots of areas in the world right now, people are killing each other right and left. I just described a scene from a poetry where a German soldier says he's still breathing. And so we're in an age in which killing is some... We think of ourselves as being in a civilized world. Abortion proves the, the dishonesty of that. We put on dress clothes and we've got abortions in numbers that, in, that, out, that outdo the numbers lost in the Second World War and the Holocaust. So we think we live in a civilized age and yet we, we do things to children, we do things to the unborn, we do things in our wars. So it's not as if we're free of the horrors that you know, Dostoevsky is looking at. So this is a serious quality to Dostoevsky's novel. It's the violence is there. It's a dark, we've entered a dark world. One of the questions that I'm going to ask towards the end is, is this a tragic world that we're looking at, or is it, is it comic? And I know you're probably going to laugh at that, but you, if those of you who have been around for a while know that in, in terms of genre, we look at tragedy and comedy as having shades, and in comedy there are various kinds of comedy. If you look at Dante, you see them clearly. There's infernal comedy. Hell is funny, even though it's scary. Purgatory is purgatorial comedy. It's people moving towards God. Paradiso comedy is the paradise. So when we look at Dostoevsky, where are we? Are we in a tragic world? Infernal comedy, purgatorial comedy, paradiso comedy, are those aspects of it, where are we? Be careful of black-white judgments here, because this is a really rich book. Okay, But those are just some questions that I'd like you to have as you move forward, okay? And I'll, I'll, I'll do this novel point of view next week because I'm going to look closely at the narrative. Um, um, I was going to spend a little bit more time going over the history, but I, I don't want to. Um, what I'd like to do is qualify something that I said last week. You know that the whole purpose of what I did last week um, um, was to just give an overview um, because of its relevance for modern Russia, okay? And I, I started with that quote from Herodotus, where Herodotus, the fifth century Greek historian, um, did, made the first historical distinction between East and West. And he said, um, the, the East is formed by barbaric tribes. There's this great diversity of people, and there's an incoherence between them. They don't speak the common language. And the Greeks were known by their um, uniformity, so that he set the two worlds off in that way. Um, that the, the East was formed by barbarians, basically. And I reminded everybody of that um, description that Homer gives mm -hmm. us in the third book of the Iliad. If you go to the third book of the very opening, after um, the truce is broken, remember when Paris and Menelaus are going to fight, the truce is broken and they go back to war. The third chapter describes the two armies going back to war and he says, all of the Trojans ran into battle like wild fowl, screaming and yelling. Different pitches, different languages in a sense. The Greeks were silent, um, stoic in their resolve and in their unity. So it's incoherent, babbling, a unified spirit going into battle, being together. It's one of the, it's one of the early characteristics. And you know from our work in the Iliad and the Odyssey that I think, I think Europe 
doesn't begin with Herodotus and that concept that he gives us as a concept. It begins with the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid. In the Iliad, we have a poem in which we see that a notion of the Logos is beginning to enter the West. Some people see that poem as a poem of force. It's not a poem of force. It's force on every page. It's a poem showing that the Logos is giving a purpose and a direction to the way in which men abuse force. There's a new sense of honor in entering the West. Remember, it begins with people wanting booty, killing people. Um, because you've been um, mistreated, you'll get back. Um, Achilles comes to this new sense of honor, this Cleos. We've already gone through it all. Remember in the ninth book when, when Agamemnon sends the booty, Achilles says, I think such honors a thing I need not. I think I'm already honored in Zeus's ordinance. There's a transcendent dignity given to humans. He carries something transcendent in him. So booty can never measure that. Not, there's, how much, how much beauty, booty can you give a man to finally honor him? If, it, if there's a transcendent nature, booty won't give it to you. And the other thing you know, we learned from the book, if, if your honor depends on booty, um, if it can be given to you, it can be taken away. And if it's taken away, then who are you? We, I mean, I sometimes laugh when I see these billion dollar lawsuits against somebody as if that money's going to ever amount to the love that you, know, that you lose when you lose somebody or somebody. We so measure things in material terms today. So the Iliad is the first poem about this inherent dignity that man has. He has a transcendent quality to his soul. That's peculiar to the West. The Odyssey is about marriage. There's a special quality to marriage that a man and a woman can come to. Those of you who've done the Odyssey know it. Odysseus has to go on all these journey to learn to see these archetypes, the, the deeper things, before he can go home. And it's only when he himself becomes lawless when he is educated in those things that he can become the man, the husband that he was intended to be. So when he returns home, and, and Penelope has to do the same because she has to endure all this suffering, you know, every, her beauty, all that it brings on. So the two of them come together, changed from who they were 20 years earlier. And Homer is showing us the kind of perfection that can exist between a man and a life after all these years of learning to deal with life. And then the Aeneid deals with um, the founding of the city, this new city that, in which everybody will have a place. The city won't be determined on racial boundaries, which is the way it was before. Greece, Italy. When, remember, when Aeneas goes to Italy, all the tribes are filing. They're killing each other. Rome will be this city in which each individual um, can come and be with us irrespective of his sex or his race. It's called the universal eternal city, and that's just before Christ and the New Jerusalem, which is what Christ came for. So I would say Europe is is not just defined by its rational, geological, physical boundaries. It's a concept. It's, it's a certain understanding of the human person that's peculiar to us. And I suggested that, remember, in the seat of the power, the church and state combine. And, and the other thing is that um, in the West, there's this intimate relationship between religion and philosophy because they share this notion of a logos. The logos to Christians was Christ. The logos, there was a logos to the pre-Christian world and believed that there was this intelligibility to everything in nature. 
So in the West, religion and, and um, philosophy have always been compatible. They had this notion of reason and faith being together. That's not so outside the Western world. So they grew together and got richer from, from Augustine to Boethius to St. Thomas. And, when, and, and at that point, shortly after, that's Dante and the Renaissance, who were, and we're in the modern world. But I suggested, just to get a sense of what's happening historically, that the center of the Western world was Rome. It moved east to Byzantium and became Constantinople when Constantine took the seat of the empire east. That became the center of the empire. And, then, and because of that shift, tensions um, developed between Latin and Greek worlds. Boethius is killed out of those tensions because he's accused of being in, in, implicated in over, trying to overthrow government. So the tensions between Latin and Greek worlds increases. Charlemagne, with his ninth century, brings a unity back to Europe. He's the king of the France. He, he makes all these conquests and he conquers the Lombards in Italy and, and brings a unity back to Europe that it hasn't had in centuries. Um, in, f in the 15th century, I think it was 1453, something like that, the, um, the Turks conquer Constantinople. That seat of culture, arts, philosophy, thinking comes to an end. It's replaced by an Islamic culture, still a culture. Um, it's, um, it's still picked up and seated in Rome, in Italy. Um, but, but that culture begins to move um, east and north. It's at that point that Russia sees Moscow as being the new Rome. And the Tsar is the new Caesar. That's what Tsar means. So we've watched Europe expand from Rome to the Byzantine world and in the modern world to Russia, to Moscow. That's, that's the sort of backstory to Dostoevsky. I don't want to go into it any more than that. The one important thing that, that has to be said here is that under the reign of Peter the Great, um, he tried with all of his p power in Russia, because Russia was the most expansive country in the world, um, he tried to make conquests in Finland. He wanted to bring Finland into his empire and um, the north of Turkey in the Ottoman world. He failed <coughs> in both accounts. He went west to learn from all the western um, countries, visited the kings and their courts, and was amazed at the learning, the, the technological superiority of Europe over Russia. He brought back all these plans, designs, to change Russia. So what happened then is absolutely crucial to this book. Because what he did is bring back all of these Enlightenment ideas, genuinely from an Enlightenment period, hoping to transform Russia. Now stop and think about it. This is Holy Mother Russia. So it's a very, it's a, it's a world of serfs. It's a peasant world. It's an agrarian <coughs> world. It's feudal, the way Europe was. Um, but it didn't undergo the, an organic change. It underwent this abrupt rationalistic train ch change with, a, with an imp emperor attempting to impose artificially a new way of doing things. And it absolutely dislocated the country. What it did was create this intensified the separations. Um, shortly, just before Doske writes his book, the, the serfs are emancipated. It's the emancipation of the serfs. The serfs are freed 
and, and it was done with under, in, under the influence of Enlightenment ideas because all of Europe has just, just underwent a century of wars. 1848 marked um, a, a century in which all the uh, practically all the countries in Europe were going to war. And that was after a century of war the century before, the French Revolution, the American Revolution. So Europe was being radically changed for a couple of centuries. And under the influence of those democratic changes, Russia wanted to free the serfs. They did with disastrous results. The serfs were freed, they had no money, the landowners had no serfs to run the land, the serfs were made to pay rent for a couple of years, so they were abandoned. And the landing class um, slowly disintegrated. Um, it created a situation in which merchants and investors could come in as it was in the West. And there were um, constant, um, there was constant talk about assassinating the czars, the, the Russian leaders. It was at this time when um, Dostoevsky is meeting with what I think was called a Belinsky group. It was a reading group. They, they had no intentions, no they, they were interested in revolutionary ideas, but they had no intent, no intentions of overthrowing the czar. But he was taken in that meeting and accused of treason, of plotting to assassinate the czar. And you know that he's brought before an execution squad right up to the moment when the rifles are pointed at him and suddenly it's commuted and he's freed and he goes off to four years of labor. So that's the background. But Dostoevsky's writing in a period where the Russian culture has been struck at its heart. These cultural, psychic dislocations are taking place. People have no way of relating to each other because the world that they once knew is gone. And we're seeing, we become aware as we read these characters of how caught they are by the intellectual life. There's almost a, not a character in here who, who doesn't speak by using allusions to literary works or philosophical works. They're constantly throwing them in. It's a little, it's a little, it's a little bit like showing how smart you are, you know, to sneak a line from Hamlet in and today, you know. Um, so we're aware of a, of a world that um, has lost itself. They were reading a story about lost souls. Um, those who are seen educated by the West seem the calmest, but they're also the most pretentious. There's nobody, very few people in this book who stand on a secure ground. People are searching, not knowing who they are trying to find their bearings. And last comment. Remember I said, we know this, in the, in the West, religion and philosophy grew up hand in hand, organically <coughs> together. So from the pre-Socratics, the, um, the, the philosophers in the pre-Christian world, to the Christians who followed, there's this compatibility between religion and, um, and philosophy. Every, if you've read Plato and Aristotle, you know that in so many ways it fits Christianity. It's almost like it prepares for it. In the West, that doesn't exist. So in the, in the East, you, you've got people able to grow together in their, in their use of reason and in their faith. When you watch these dislocations take place in the East, in Russia, you're seeing that there's no way they can bring their head and heart together. They either tend to be in intellectuals or beasts. Okay, and one last thing, and then I'll stop here. Because last, last week when we met, I just did this quick overview uh, and left it there. I want to make this one qualification. 
because I think it's it's I I believe Dostoevsky's Brothers is a, is a window on our on America. You can just but as you I'd be interested to hear your thoughts when we're done with it. Um, I was saying to Suzanne the other night, nobody in the West up until 80 years ago in America, in the West, nobody in the West, and I'm thinking mainly Europe, the major educational centers in Europe, France, England, or in America, nobody could have been educated and not have encountered Plato or Aristotle. Nobody. Now they're dead white men. And for the last 80 years, they have not been read. I want you to, everybody to think about this really seriously, because this is not a small thing for me. Nobody could have read Plato. Those of you who have been here for, even though we've never read him, like you've heard me talk about him forever. Nobody could have read Plato without coming away from him, understanding that one of the most important things for us to do in our life is to take justice seriously. That the ultimate virtue for Plato was justice, to give another his due. And we know that according to Plato, nobody could do that until he took seriously ordering his own soul. That's the major theme of the Republic. And almost every one of his um, dialogues deals with justice. And I've talked about how well that lines up with the Old Testament. When we go to Mass every day, if you, if you go to Mass every day or once a weekend, you, you cannot miss it. Old Testament, justice, 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 justice. Again and again, the law, justice. New Testament. Love, love, love. And Christ saying, I came not to do away with the law, but to fulfill it. Christ did not come to do away with the law any more than he wanted to disobey his father. There's nothing Christ does that undermines his father. Everything he does is to fill his father's justice in love. So I've argued again and again, the, the greatest call for us as Christians is to bring justice in the world and fulfill it in love. The fundamentalist world has made unconditional love a reason for doing away with justice. No such thing. The answer to, to um, a person who's committed a felony isn't to do away with a felony, it's to put him in jail. But never stop loving him. If you take away the law, you've left him free to go commit the sin again. The whole, we saw that in Portia in Merchant of Venice. Remember, what she had to do was hold on to the law but fulfill it in a love that nobody else in that play could do. So the task for all of us is to try to realize justice in an unconditional love, but not to do away with the law. Because there's no way to read Christ as doing away with his Father. He came from the Father. He's doing his Father's will. So if you look at Plato... <coughs> There's no way to give another his due without learning to order your own soul, to make it good. You can't read Aristotle without seeing the most important thing for Aristotle is virtue. How do I become virtuous? Both of them are saying this. We cannot become the human beings God gave us to be unless we become more just and unless we become more virtuous. The only institution that I know of in the world that upholds those two things is the Catholic Church. You can't go to a Protestant here and talking about justice or reconciling justice and love, and you can't go to the world anymore. Who reads Plato and Aristotle? So there was no way 80 years ago to enter the Western world and be educated and not encounter Plato and Aristotle. And if you did, there's no way, none, 
if anybody took him seriously, we could live any day without trying to be more just and more virtuous to watch what we do. That, that is because we become conscious of our actions. If we've read them, right? We learn from our actions, we look at the consequences of it and say, that's not a good thing to do, I've got to do this. In order to be virtuous, I have to do, if I'm too fearful about things or too arrogant, you know, or too afraid or whatever, or wasteful in my money, or eat too much, whatever it is, if that's an inclination in me, I have to do this to answer it. So there's no way you could read either of those men without taking more responsibility for yourself. To be more just, to be more virtuous. That was our inheritance. Is everybody clear on that? This is crucial. Now watch what happens. 80 years ago, what happens? Marx, Darwin, Freud, Hegel, <laughs> dead white men, they're gone. The kids coming out of school for the last 80 years have been taught Marx, Hegel, Freud. When they come out of school today, they're not concerned about justice or virtue or being conscientious about themselves. They're being concerned about bringing in an ideology. Their whole orientation is political and utopian. It's socialistic. It's to bring in this new world. So there's no concern, I have to get myself better before I can even think about it. It's, I want, to, I want to create this world because if we do, all problems will go away. It's messianic. It, it's heaven and earth. That's the socialistic move for the last 80 years. Is everybody clear? This is so crucial. That's in the West. Now what's happening in the East? The East enters, or in Russia, the European Enlightenment world enters Russia without those centuries of tradition. And the whole nature of the education is utopian and socialistic in that direction. There is no philosophy. And it's leaving people in their heads and in their passions. More and more like it is, I would say, here in America today. But anyway, I wanted to qualify that just to give a sense of the spiritual kinds of problems that we're encountering in this book. That's the sort of backstory of. Because in one sense, Russia enters the European world, but it doesn't have the support of traditions. Um, or, or, and it doesn't have the encouragement of self-reflection. The whole nature of the intellectual effort now is outward towards political ends. And by the way, you can put Machiavelli in there as well, not just Marx or Hegel. Or okay, I want to stop, and I want to turn to the... That's, that's just the, any, I hope everybody sees the relevance to America today, because if you're listening to the hard debates going on, you know, you, you can't, you, know, you can't, you, you can't hear them and not hear the same tones, and, but that's, that's the rush of, of Dostoevsky's world. To, if, if you, any of you see any relevance between Russia and our world, it, it seems to me you can, you can say in an unqualified way, there's a lot to Dostoevsky's work that's prophetic of the modern world. Um, so, let me stop. I want to. I want to get to the book. But any, I know that's all general. It's just broad strokes. It's meant to be. It's, you know, a history course. I'd have to go into details. I. I can't. But. Okay, one last thing on the novel. I mentioned this last week too, but it's good to know. Remember that the epic 
looks back to a closed world. It belongs to a past that's closed off. It tends to be idealized, and it shows the very greatest possibilities in man. That's the nature of the epic. So it's heroic. Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas. Um, all, of those, all of those works show us that man is capable of this extraordinary, he has this greatness, this inherent goodness. Um, and remember the cost of them. In, in the Iliad, um, Achilles can only, go ba- can only do what he does when he goes back into the war once he accepts his death and once he accepts responsibility for his own failings. That was one of the major truths of the Iliad. It's only when Achilles says, I let everybody down. It's only when he admits his failings and he accepts his death that nobody can touch him. Because what does he have to be afraid of? The whole effort for us is, for I think for all of us, is to get past those things that we're afraid of in our own pride, admit them and accept our death. When we do, it's a liberating a moment. If we don't, we're caught behind them. That's the nature of the struggle there in the Iliad. In, uh, in the Odyssey, it's Odysseus learning to see depths of his character, you know, all the archetypes. And just a because most people see the Iliad as a critique of men, how abusive men can be. Don't forget that in the Iliad, the part of the serious critique there is of feminine, of the of woman. Huh? The Odyssey. Sorry, we were we're going to start the Odyssey at um, Seton next week or next class, and but I just gave a brief outline, and I said Odysseus is going to meet all these archetypes and masculine feminine archetypes I came away from the board and I said just looking ahead even even though you haven't read the work who do you think will be the most dangerous archetypes male or female there was this great silence (laughs) 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 finally one woman said (laughs) pretty confidently feminine (laughs) I said good for you good for you when Suzanne, when Suzanne and I were on the way home, she was chuckling at the at the question because I thought it was a good question, and the response was really telling. And she said, her comment was, "Men, men are capable of of of, of uh, physical violence and even a, of of killing men. Or, I mean, women, but women are capable of making men wish that they'd never been alive." <laughs> <laughs> I told my barber that the other day when I got a haircut. He said, "That's why. That's why men die earlier. It's because they want. Because they want to." <laughs> anyway, the Odyssey is is a wonderful critique of women, the, arch, the feminine archetypes, and they are dangerous. Those of you who've read it know, Achilles is on Circe's island for a year and. Calypso's Island for nine nine years, or yeah, eight years. So for eight years, so for nine and a half years of the time he's facing these dangers, the greatest danger is that women have control over him for nine years. He's got to learn to deal with that before before he can come home, to you know, to, for that marriage to. Um, the the uh, the Aeneid is about founding of a city, so the epic looks back to that ancient world, to these archetypes, to these founding things, the, the things on the surface and the things just below the surface. The modern novel comes into existence in an, in an, in an, in an empirical world, a scientific world. It's new. So it, it, it doesn't look back to a world in which the, the, the gods are involved with men, because that's a metaphysical world, above physics. 
it takes as its subject a physical world, an empirical world. That's the modern <laughs> novel. So if you watch um, Tom Jones or you know, Jane Austen or Dickens or um, Robinson Crusoe, I mean, you go through the British novel or the European novel, it's generally, generally about the social world, and it's almost always critiquing manners. Because what we see in those novels, you're in a mannered world, you've lost sight of final ends, religion's not as important anymore. So it deals almost exclusively with the social world. That's the, that's the nature of the, no, the novel. So the novel enters this world. It's more messy, it deals with familiar things, and it takes ordinary people as its subject. Okay? So we've entered our world as we know it. It's familiar, ordinary. It's also more open-ended um, because it's not a world closed off that's already completed the way it is in the epic. Um, um, it shows, and the breaking point, the, what the transition work is Dante's The Divine Comedy because you know Dante takes himself as the narrator. That's a radical shift in an epic because remember, Homer Virgil take themselves as narrator and they're talking about heroes, not themselves. Dante takes himself and with that change he makes it apparent that because the whole world is about Christian salvation, each man returning to God, his home. So he makes it clear that every person is a story and that's why you get this proliferation of novels in the modern world because every person is a story. And Dostoevsky, it seems to me, we get a novel with epic proportions. That he's doing what the epic writers did. He's showing a nation. Because remember, the, the epic poet was a spokesman for a people. The Greeks, the Romans. Dostoevsky is a spokesman for Russia. Um, he said at the end of his life, when he looked back, uh, and I think this is what most Russians said of him, far more for him than Tolstoy, that he was the father of the Russian people. He said he revealed the Russian soul to itself. He, he gave a voice to Russians. He could help, like poets do, they help us find our own voice. He, he spoke things that they felt and wanted to say but didn't have the words to say it. Um, okay. Let's what I want to do today is I'm going to go through, I'm going to go through and just summarize the chapters because I want to get us into the book. And then next week I'm going to return to some of the things. But just today I want to get everybody familiar so the names aren't so strange and you're beginning to get a hold of the plot. But any questions or comments about anything so far? Okay. Let's. Um, I want to look at the um, the first part. Let me see if I can't get up to book five, or at least touch on it. In part one, in book one, Dostoevsky gives us the background of the family, and it's here that we learn that Fyodor had married Adelaida, um, his first wife, who ran off with a seminarian. I think she got tired of his um, foolishness. Dmitri is born, and he runs off at some point, joins the army. He's, he's a brave man, um, promoted for his courage, and he's also demoted for dueling. 
So he's, he's a man of honor. Um, and in one sense, it seems to me, he looks immediately back to Theodore, the father. I, I don't remember, did I tell you, did I tell you St. Augustine's comment on the first child? Did I give that to you? St. Augustine said, I don't remember where, but I remember reading it somewhere. Um, it may have been in the Confessions. I, he said, the first child of a marriage um, is always far more given to passion because he's more immediately re- the result, the product of passion. That when married couples get married and they're first young, the sexual passions are far more ripe and new. And, and as married couples stay together, their passions quiet some, generally. Um, and remember that from what I said last week, Theodore's an image of the old man. I, put, I hope I put that. Because you, you all know what's meant by the old man, right, in Christian terms. Well, here. He's the old man. He's that old man in every one of us. And every woman, every woman has the old man, old Eve. <coughs> um, every one of us carries our fall with us. So every man has within him the old man. It's a typology. It's that part that needs redeeming. And every woman has the old man in her. It can be the old man, Eve. Every woman carries an Eve in her. And the problem facing all of us is to enter a new life given to us by Christ. To grow out of the old man to become the new band, the new creation. We've been encountering that again and again and again in, in, in our literature. Remember when we did Scarlet Letter, repeatedly, um, Dostoevsky was called the old man, and Chillingsworth, more particularly, was called the old man, described as an old man. And the question was, would Dimsdale ever reach a point where he would become a new soul, a new creation? Would he be redeemed? So Theodore is an image of the old man. He looks back to the fall. He carries all the faults of a fall. He doesn't care about them. He just does them. He's passionate, um, given to drink and sex. And Dimitri has a lot of those qualities. He's ready to fight. He's a man of honor. He's a soldier. He's a cast back to that old world, that old Hamlet. Same thing in him. Hamlet's father was a knight. Hamlet had to avenge his father. And the interesting thing about Hamlet is Hamlet's father was a knight. We don't, we have no sense that he was Christianized. He was a fighter. He wanted his son to take vengeance on his death. Hamlet had to do that, but Hamlet came from Wittenberg, which was a Christian university. That is, he had to avenge his father's death and not violate his Christian conscience. That's the struggle he's faced with. So father and son, first father and first child, very often bear those first traces of the fall, the passion, the honor, the pride. They're all there in Dimitri. Um, he, um, when his wife left him, Theodore married Sophia, and his description of her is that her innocence pierced his soul. He was so taken by her beauty and her innocence, but it made him more aware of his bad, what a scoundrel he was, and the way he played that out is by doing these awful things in her presence, these you know orgies and sexual encounters. Um, she got so disturbed and affected by them that she had a, a breakdown, but she, she gave birth to the two later children, to Yvonne and Alyosha. Um, the one of the things I want to look at here, just in the title, I, um, is Book one is called A Nice Little Family. Now, what do you do with that? Anybody? Get suspicious. 
And? I mean, doesn't that, doesn't, does that not, not ring true in something in America? I mean, the way we, the way we idolize suburbia. Not kidding. You, we go to suburbia to have this nice little family. And once we get to suburbia, 10 years when we're there, what do we find? We've turned it into another sinful city. I mean, we can't, we can't create a garden. I've told you this before. Suburbia is an effort to escape the city and its sins. Once we're there, drugs. I mean, everything, divorces, adultery. We carry our sins so that suburbia keeps you know, moving on. Um, but the ideal of it all, it seems in America, is to have this nice little family. It, so it's a parody of, of Western ideas that are being imported into Europe. Because remember, Russia has been um, stratified. There's the royal line, the royal class, that belongs to the dynastic families. There's the landed class, the people who own things. Um, the gentry class, they're the ones who own the land. And then there's the peasants. And the, and the gentries own the peasants, just like slaves. They own them. Not until the emancipation are the... Of, um, the serfs freed, and even then, it's you know it's a mess. But here you've got this nice little family. I'm the only reason I'm pointing out because to me it sounds so American. But what we discover once you look at that family is just pro problems everywhere. Um, it's us. It's us. So which wife had the breakdown? Sophia, the second one, because she was there was such a a beauty and innocence to her. I think a delicacy and for her to experience all that he did, particularly shaming her the way he did, you know, in her presence, so it was too much. In book two, um, there's a gathering. Dimitri's got a claim against his father for his inheritance. Alyosha thinks that Zosimov, the, the elder monk who's so good, might be able to help, so they gather. And when they do, um, certain things get exposed. Turn to page 40. I just, I'm going to try to go through some of this and just touch on it briefly, but so the men meet. Um, Piotr or Miosov is a friend and he's a former benefactor of um, Ivan, so he comes as a friend, but he's very guarded because he knows that Fyodor's tendency is to embarrass people. To, to say stupid things. So he goes very cautiously, but he does come. So the men gather, and in a minute we're going to see that, that they're going to talk about politics. It's what men do. 40. Middle of the page, 40. It's precisely the time, cried Pyodor Pavlovich, and my son Dmitri still isn't here. I apologize for him, sacred elder. Alyosha cringes, I myself am always very punctual to the minute, remembering that punctuality is the courtesy of kings. Not that you're a king, muttered Miosov, unable to restrain himself. That's quite true, I'm not a king. And just imagine, um, Pyotr Alexandrovich, I even know it myself. Now he goes on doing what he does. Um, we would call it gas, just going on and on, making words, speaking. He says, um, he was talking to a commissioner once, and in, in responding to him, he says, I spoke directly with him, you know, with the familiarity of a man of the world, Mr. Ipspravnik, I said to him, so be, so to speak, our Napravnik. Now what he's doing is playing a pun on names from 
um, is Pravnik to not Pravnik. What do you mean you're not Pravnik? Now, not Pravnik was a famous Moscow composer, I think. So he's, he's a little bit like saying, um, I'm going to make something up. Let's say we've got friends over to the house. Um, let's say Tom comes over and he, and he does something muscular or something and I'm laughing because I know I can't do it. And I say to him, so you're showing your, uh, your uh, who did the Terminator? Your muscles? No. So you're doing your Schwarzenegger bit, are you now? You know, I mean, something like that. It would be because most people know short. And I, so it'd be just, it's that sort of thing, okay? He's just playing, making a pun on a name by using somebody that you would assume he'd know. But notice the way he keep all of the, most of the characters keep using these illusions really as a way of showing they're educated. This guy takes offense at what he says, and, and you can imagine that Theodore does all of this stuff in an embarrassing way. I wanted to say, I wanted to make a joke for our general, this is 41 at the top, for our general amusement. Mr. Nafrovnik is our famous Russian Kalpelmeister, and we, for the harmony of our enterprise, also precisely need a sort of Kalpermeister, as it were. He's just going on. I explained it all and compared it quite reasonably, didn't I? I beg your pardon, he says, I'm an Isprovnik, and I will not allow you to use my title for your puns turned around and was about to walk away. I started after and called him, yes, yes, you are an Isprovnik, not a Nafprovnik. No, he says, have it your way, I'm a Nafprovnik. Just imagine our, our deal fell through, and that's how I am. It's always like that with me. So one of the things we can say about them, he's constantly foolish. He calls himself a buffoon. People call him a buffoon and a clown, but he acknowledges it. He's very open about it. I'm forever damaging myself with my own courtesy. Once this was many years ago, I said to an influential person, your wife, sir, is a ticklish woman, referring to her honor. Because you know that some women are, are particularly sensitive. We, we'd use that ticklish, you know, that way. Um, meaning she's fussy or, you know, or, or too sensitive, you know. And, Referring to her honor, her moral quality, so to speak, her moral... And he suddenly retorted, did you tickle her? I couldn't help myself. Why not a little pleasure banter? I thought, yes, I said, I did tickle her, sir. Well, at that, he gave me quite a tickling. <laughs> Probably thumped him good a couple of times. I'm always damaging myself like that. You're doing it now, too, Miyasov. Now, you know, if you've read the dialogue, this goes on, and every time, generally, when Piotr says something, Miyasov will come in, come in and correct him. And he'll say, I'm not like that. I, you know, <coughs> you say you're on time, I'm on time. Really, imagine, I knew it all along. Piotr Alexandrovich, and you know, I even had a feeling that I was, I was going to, I was doing it just as I started speaking. And you know, I even had a feeling that you would be the first to point it out to me. Go down a few lines. I'm a naturally born buffoon. I am, Reverend Father, just like a holy fool. I won't deny that there's maybe an unclean spirit living in me. Um... Going over top of 43. Miusov says, forgive me, he begins. It may seem to you that I too am a participant in this unworthy farce. My mistake was in trusting that even such a man as Fyodor Pavlovich would be willing to recognize his duties when visiting such a venerable person. He does everything he can to dissociate himself from Fyodor because Fyodor is constantly embarrassing himself. Then Zosimov says, this is crucial, middle of the page, 43. Um, once again, 
Fyodor apologizes. Um, and then Zosimov says, I earnestly beg you to not to worry and not to be uncomfortable. The elder said to him imposingly, be at ease and feel completely at home. And above all, do not be so ashamed of yourself for that's the cause of everything. Now, Fyodor is so moved by Zosimov's response that he says below, blessed is the womb that bore thee, to bear thee and the paps which thou hast sucked, the paps essentially, he can't leave it there, he has to go on the way he does. But, he, but I think for a moment he's, he feels the genuine goodness of what Zosimov said. Um, so Peter goes on for a minute and then Zosimov says, top of 44, you've known for a long time what you should do because Zosimov says, I'm not sure what I should do to correct myself. Zosima says, you know what you should do. You have sense enough. Do not give yourself up to drunkenness and verbal incontinence. Do not give yourself up to sensuality and especially to the adoration of money. And close your taverns if you cannot close all of them in at least two or three. And above all, above everything else, do not lie. Zosima, or I mean, uh, Fyodor uh, makes light of it. You know that money is a huge issue for Fyodor. He wants to save all of it so that he can go into his old age continuing to spend money on women to feed his sensual, sensuous appetite. Alyosha, I mean, Zosima's got to know that. Now, just for a moment, and I just want to take a moment, what do you make of these three figures? Well, can, can I ask a, yeah, a yeah, question? Sure. Is there some significance to the fact that all these characters have so many different names? Uh, to me, it, the, I, I, I'm not sure that I can answer that well. But the the one obvious thing that I do know is that they're like um, people in the Iliad. That every man has his carries his paternal family name with him because they're all known by that family name. So it's it's not an uncommon thing to do in Russian to identify people because there you can't whoever your individual identity is can't be separated from your family. So that's a common. Practice. I read a chapter that had like six names in it or something, and it wasn't until after it was all over I realized it was the same person. I know, I know, I know, I know. I know. I'm getting a little, I'm getting a little better at it, but it's like even, even here, you know. So wait a minute, who's Musa? Yeah, right, I know, I know. You get, wait, go back just because, David, I don't want to lose the. What's the significant? I mean, what does that show if you put the two worlds together? Just on the basis of what you just said, because it's so telling. Huh? <coughs> well, I mean, the most obvious thing that's, I mean, in the Iliad, you can't, uh, Homer won't identify somebody without identifying them with the, what's the patronymic name, you know, the, the, the past. Do people in America identify themselves with their family name? Or do we know them as individuals as if they're on their own alone? I know, but how often do you ever hear, how many people say to me, hi, Bob Alexander? No, or, we don't. Oh, we first just, name basis. When, when my company merged or merged with a German company, for a long time, it, it took us a while to appreciate the fact that we would always call each other by first names. Right. But they would always call each other, particularly if they didn't know you right. very well, right. by their last name. Right. And they were offended right. if you called them by their right. first name. It's an honorific thing. I mean, we don't have it in America because, um, I, mean, th I mean, this is slightly exaggerated, but just slightly. In America, we live, for the most part, isolated, indi isolated autonomous individuals. 
That's our nature. Isolated, autonomous. You cannot be named in a, in a European country that has a past behind it without being identified with that past. <coughs> so a simple thing like names, is, it just gives away a culture. We are so individualistic. It just it troubles me when you see all these advertisements with people taking selfies. Oh, I just look, say, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. Um, anyway, so that it's not uncommon here. Um, so, anything about these three characters, quick. They are. Is Zazima funny? Zazima's all about The other two guys are like Abbott and Costello. One's kind of joking, and the other guy's a serious straight man. Characterize Musov. Characterize him as a man. I'm going to come back to this next week because it's, huh? He's a downer. Yeah. He's not uh, into the buffoonery. But he certainly he into holds himself above others. Yeah. You know, like, kind of poo-poos everyone. Even going into the meeting, uh, he was very, you know, formal. Yeah, formal and, you know, hesitant or skeptical about anything. When, when Miesov makes that remark when Fyotov talks about, uses the... Um, the allusion to the king, and he says th that you're not a king. And then in the other passage, you know, when, when Fyodor goes on, Musov says, forgive me, may seem to you that I too am a participant in this unworthy far farce. My mistake was trusting that even such a man as Fyodor would be willing to, I did not think that I would have to apologize. Just somebody characterize him then. What is he, what motivates him? I, I think it's almost defensive or he's, he's trying to cover a little bit. In the sense that he's he, he's trying to make people think he's more than he really is, you know that he's he's not as good as he wants to be. He's sensitive about that, and so like like many people, when you're you, you're lacking self confidence, then you tend to jump all over everybody else, trying to make make yourself look better because of that lack of confidence. Yeah, I that's the sense I got. Yeah. His, his image is everything to him. His personal yes. image, what other people think about him, yeah. is, is everything yes. to him. Yes. Yep. Whereas, whereas Theodore, I think he he goes on and on and on to sort of excuse his behavior, um, and he 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 calls himself a buffoon so that it's okay. Right. So that you'll accept <coughs> me. Yes. So it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I don't have any sense that he. Is in, I don't think he has any awareness of being insecure. I think he's too caught in his pride. I mean, I would say that he cares. He reminds me of Hector. He cares far more about his image, what people think. So everything he does in response to Fyodor is to show that he's separate from him and better than. So he, he's an image of this modern, isolated man who's a product of this intellectual class coming into Russia who has these manners who uses them to show he's superior to, so he will not let, almost not let a comment of um, theater go without using it as a means to show he's better, that he doesn't do that. 
Now look at what look at what Zosimov says though when the when the men are making these exchanges, and Fyodor has just said something. He says, "This is the middle of 43 again. I earnestly beg you not to worry, not to be uncomfortable." Be at ease and feel completely at home, and above all, do not be so ashamed of yourself, for that's the cause of everything. Immediately, Fyodor recognizes the truth of that, how, how it applies to him, and it's if for a second he's taken by the fact that Zosim is so truthful, and then gets caught up in his, you know, buffoonery again. But then, and, and then he says, what should I do about it? And the elder says, Zosim says, you know what you should do. Um, don't give yourself to drunkenness, verbal incontinence, do not give, sensuality, especially money, all that. If you c- cannot close all of the taverns, then at least two or three. Above all, above everything else, do not lie. Put Zosimov in this mix next to Musov and Fyodor. What do we make of Zosimov? He's one of the central figures of the whole work. He's the man that Alyosha keeps returning to. And when he's about to die, all the monks from gathering monasteries come to to visit him. Well, I think in this case, he's very insightful. I mean, he understands what's going on in front of him. And he's not being fooled by him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He really, he's, he's the holy man. I mean, he, he speaks the truth. Um, he, he won't speak anything but the truth. They can't, he's just too good a man. What comes out of him is what's inside. Um, but he doesn't do it unkindly. But he says the truth. He says to um, Fyodor exactly what Fyodor said. And notice he's not cut up on manners. He's not doing what Musev does. Musev is a man who, who prizes himself on his respectability. This is where we are again in this American world that we find ourselves so constantly, in this world of manners. He's not cut up in respectability. He does, he's not trying to live up to appearances, not putting on a show. He's speaking the truth. There's nothing unkind in what he's saying. It's just the truth. Um, go on over. Um, after I'm going to come back to this again next week, but um, in book three called The Sensualist, we were introduced to Grigory and Marfa. Marfa wanted to leave Fyodor, and Grigory wouldn't. In, in Grigory, I think we see the best of the serf class like the slaves in the, in the south who didn't want to go north, that they've been servants of these masters for so long that they feel a loyalty and they don't want to betray them. So he's a man of honor. He shares that sense of honor that's so strong in the Russians. He will not leave Fyodor, even though Fyodor is not a good man. They stay and um, we're told the story of the birth of Smerdyakov that um, Marfa gave birth to this child, but it had six fingers. And um, um, Grigory took it as a sign of unholiness. This is really important, I think. Uh, Grigory took it as a sign of unholiness because it was um, disfigured. It wasn't normal. So the child didn't survive. He buried it. On the, on, this is so important. On the, on the night that he buried, went out in the backyard to bury that child, he hears the cries of stinking Lizaveta, this idiot woman, who dies giving birth to Smerdyakov. So at the moment that their child dies, Smerdyakov comes into existence. Now just hold on to that. And one of the questions we have to ask is, was, was that child, that six-fingered child, evil? Was it demonic? Grigory was superstitious. And the interesting thing is once he'd buried it, he came to love it, missed it <laughs> deeply. That's just to hold on to that as a part of a backstory going on here. 
Um, Alyosha goes to see um, Katrina, but he meets Dimitri on the way. Turn to 106. Remember, when, when Dimitri came into the meeting, he threw everything off. I should have put Dimitri in that meeting because it was Miasov, Fyodor, Rakuten was there, Alyosha, some of the monks, Zosimo, they were all there. Dimitri comes in and there's immediate arguing between father and son. And there's even talk about um, killing. Um, that um, The father says, I'll kill you. They're, they are so passionate in their love of Grishenka and afraid of the other as a rival. So the meeting breaks up, Alyosha goes, um, and in the scene that follows between him and Rakuten, we see that Rakuten, I think, is a lot like Miusov. He's a seminarian, but he's new. He doesn't belong to that old tradition of elders. He's new. He's educated. Um, what's the word? Um, what's the word when you're um, full of yourself? Some readers use it to describe Joyce's conceited. Stephen, huh? It's conceited. Um, conceited. Uh, oh God! Oh my mind. Sorry. Let's. Sorry. Um, Self-absorbed. We get. Yeah. I mean, that's it. It's when you snobbish. When you try to acquire cultures that don't come to you naturally, you are. It's a self-cultivated sense of importance. Uh, a prig. A prig. He's a prig. He has that, that, that he's full of himself because he's educated. So he, he brings that quality to a monastery. When if you look at the monastic life, that's the last thing you can see. So Alyosha walks away with Rakuten, and if you pay attention to the conversation, you'll, you'll just hear that priggishness. It's, it's like cultivating a superior attitude because you've cultivated it without realizing how much pride it develops in you. He goes on to, to Katerina's and he comes across um, Dimitri, his brother. And Dimitri has um, been uh, meditating on, on Grushenka, the woman he loves, and his father and the problems that they're going to have. And he recites, when Alyosha comes, he describes himself in terms of drinking and doing all that he does. And then he starts quoting lines from German romantic poets, the most important is Schiller. And if, if you know anything about the romantics, you know that some of them tended to exalt the will, the human will, above the intellect in their love of something. And usually it was nature. In Schiller's case, it is. If you know Wordsworth, you know that Wordsworth often celebrating nature, um, the beauty of it. And, but look on 106 because this is a German romantic. He's talking about um, Ceres, who is the goddess from the ancient Greek world identified with nature and, and its fecundity in the Greek world. Um, 106, darkly hid in cave and cleft, shy the tr um, troglodyte abode. Earth a waste was found and left where the wandering nomads strode, deadly with the spear and shaft, proud the hunter through the land, woe to the stranger, waves may waft on an ever fatal strand. This was all to, thus was all to Circe, when searching for her ravished child, um, o'er the drear coast bleak and wild, never sheltered did she gain, goes on. 
Um, not with golden corn ears strewed were the ghastly altar stones, bleaching there and gore imbued lay unhallowed human bones. Wide and far, where she roved, still reigned misery over all, and her mighty soul was moved as man's at man's universal fall. Wherever she goes, she sees nothing but the effects of man's fall. So it's a dark poem, and notice that um, Mitya, I mean uh, Dimitri, who's looked at as a man of honor, ready to fight duels, quotes this verbatim. So there's a side to him that's very reflective, very thoughtful, like Ivan. He's got a really capable mind. Sobs suddenly burst from Mitch's breast. He sees Alyosha's hand. My friend, my friend, still fallen, still fallen even now. There's so terribly much suffering for man on earth, so terribly much grief for him. Don't think I'm just a brute, an officer who drinks cognac and goes whoring. No, brother. I hardly think of anything else, of anything but the fallen man. He, in some ways, is as sensitive to suffering as Yvonne. And if, if any of you just will go back for a minute, remember the Iliad. You remember that what brought Patroclus into the war was his pity. Once he t put on Achilles' armor, it was his pity for the fact that men were dying that took him into the war. Once he went into the war and he tried going too far, he was killed. Homer's looking at that emotion, and we've been talking about this forever. Remember the two tragic emotions that have to be um, expunged through the catharsis, the, the washing clean, the catharsis that takes place, are pity and fear. Because those are the two emotions that can be most arresting, paralyzing. If parents get caught up in pity with their child, they get arrested. It keeps them from acting and doing things sometimes they should. Um, both of them, Alyosha and, um, and Yvonne, are, are, have this great capacity for feeling. You'll see it in that chapter I mentioned earlier when you get to the Grand Inquisitor and um, Rebellion. But look down below at the next um, song. And th he's, he's quoting it verbatim. Joy is the mainspring of the whole of endless nature's calm rotation. So it seems to be a celebration of joy at nature because nature's so good. But immediately we see there are bad things in nature. Just when we trust nature, she turns on us. Just when we look at her beauty, there's a storm or a tornado or you know something that can kill us. All being drinks the mother's dew of joy from nature's holy bosom, and good and evil both pursue her steps that strew the rose's blossom. The brimming cup love's loyalty joy gives to us beneath the sod to insects, sensuality. In heaven, the cherub looks on God. So around this beauty, this love of beauty, are these dark things. At the top of the next page. Your eyes are shining too. Enough poetry. I want to tell you about the insects, about those to whom God gave sensuality. I am that very insect, brother. Those words are precisely about me. Repeatedly, he talks to his, about his love of beauty and the way beauty can lead you to Mary or Sodom. Because if you go back to the ancient world, remember, it's beauty that arouses desire. So that it can take us to Mary, but the desire that it arouses can take us to sensuality, to sex and depravity. Besides, I can't bear it in some men, even with a lofty heart and the highest mind, should start from the ideal of the Madonna and end with the ideal of Sodom. Mortal beauty is mortal, and that phrase can have two meanings. It just means of the earth. It can also mean fatal. Um, he, 
he acknowledges that he has this depravity on 109 a few lines down I love depravity and loved also the shame of depravity. I love cruelty. I'm not a bedbug, an evil, am I not a bedbug, an evil insect? In short, a Karamazov. So he's identifying his qualities in his family name, that this is our family. Calls himself an insect. At the bottom he says, um, but enough. You don't think I called you in here just for this trash, do you? No, I'll tell you something more curious. But don't be surprised that I'm not ashamed before you, but even seem to be glad. You say that because I blushed, Alyosha suddenly remarked. I blushed not at your words, not at your deeds, but because I'm the same as you. This is the first time that Alyosha is saying, whatever sensuality you have, whatever way you're, it's, in, it's a part of me. I'm going to just stop for a second. Just to visit. You remember in the um, Scarlet Letter, when Dimsdale and um, Hester meet in the forest. Um, and Hawthorne describes them as finally being able to let go of their facade. Because both of them are keeping it up. Hester in her pride and defiance doesn't want to give in to the condemnations she has to deal with every day. And Dimsdale hides between, behind his respectability. He can't acknowledge who he is because if he does, he calls in to question the whole, the whole project, the whole community. And, he, and Hawthorne describes them as she takes off the scarlet letter and tosses it and he, descri he describes her as being overcome with a sense of relief that she can suddenly be who she was eight years before when they consummated their love. And Des Dimsdale feels the same. He weeps. He cries. The scene reminds me of what happens in confession a little bit because I think, at least I think this is it's true for me, certainly, and I'm assuming it's true for you guys, but one of the reasons we go to confession is not just to confess to God, I think. I mean, we'd, it's to be known who we are, that another human being knows us. You know, whatever, whatever appearances, whatever we present to the world, we know that there's something else underneath that's not good. It's good that another person knows us in our marriages, or, you know, I mean, it takes us real risking to come out, but... It happened in Scarlet Letter, it's happening here. This is the first time in the book that we get a man completely honest about himself to somebody he loves. And it's at that point that Alyosha says, I'm the same. So no matter how much we see Alyosha as a holy man, because he is, he knows that underneath him he has these, car these karmas of trait, this old man. He carries them within himself. It's at this point, Dimitri, makes clear why he calls himself an insect. He, he tells them the story of um, his meeting with Katrina. Katrina happened to walk in on her father, who was a colonel of the regiment, at a time when he was going to kill himself because he'd been lending money to this man. Um, the man kept returning it, but one time the man didn't, and at that time a new major came in to take over the, the, the base, and her father couldn't repay him. So he was in danger of being dismissed or court-martialed. And um, Dimitri learns about it, and he tells Katrina's sister to go tell the father to come to get the money if he wants, because he's had eyes on Katrina. He really thinks she's beautiful. Um, but he doesn't go, he says, or send Katrina, or Katerina. Katrina herself comes and offers herself to Dimitri, knowing that he asked her to come thinking he would get sex, get sex because to save her father. So she comes proud, 
but ready to humble herself because she doesn't want her father to suffer. Um, page 113, middle of the page. She comes, she came in and looked squarely at me, her dark eyes resolute, defiant even, but on her lips and around her mouth, I noticed some irresolution. Part of her had to be shaking. She mentions the circumstances. Mitya, I know you well, tell me the truth. Alyosha said with emotion, Alyosha wants to know the whole truth. So I will. If you want the whole truth, this is it. I won't spare myself. My first thought was Karamazov thought. Once, brother, I was bitten by a spider and was laid up with a fever for two weeks. It was the same now. could feel the spider bite my heart, an evil insect. Understand? I, seized, I sized her up. Have you seen her? A real beauty. And she was beautiful then, but for a different reason. She was beautiful at that moment because she was noble and I was a scoundrel. She was there in the majesty of her magnanimity and her sacrifice for her father, and I was a bedbug. She came ready to sacrifice herself to save her father. So she's noble. She has, she has the same kind of pride, I think, that Hester has as a woman. She's proud, um, but she's ready to give herself. That fact makes him aware of what a scoundrel he is. And in a way that's been typical of him, because he's faced with that, what he does is give in to the scoundrel side, the weaker side. For 114. For a moment, he thinks about going to her the next day and proposing marriage, but he knows she'll refuse. And the thought that she will refuse undoes him. because he'll. So once again, his pride is pricked that after he's done this noble thing, she's going to reject him. Think about the motives here. I mean, Dostoevsky's displaying motives everywhere. He's showing what's inside of a soul by what people do constantly. He gets so boiled up that he decides not to give her the money on 114 in the middle of the page. But 4,000 is much too much. I was joking. How could you think it? You've been too gullible, madam, perhaps 200, even gladly with pleasure. But 4,000, it's too much money, miss, to throw away on such trifles. You've gone to all this trouble for nothing. Well, um, what it does is up the ante. He gives her the money finally, and she's so overcome by gratitude that at that moment she decides to give her life to him. She goes away. He almost wants to kill himself at that moment. Shortly afterwards, um, her benefactor dies, leaving her money. She's able to repay Dimitri. So he feels like he's off the hook. She gives him some money to give to her sister. Instead of giving the money to her sister, I think it was 300 rubles, he, he meets Grishenka and he takes her out and they have an orgy. So he's betrayed Katrina's trust. And that's um, where it stands now. And um, what Dmitri has just done is been completely open about himself to his brother um, and the confusion that's left in him, not knowing what to do with Katrina, that she wants to marry him now when he wants to marry Grushenka. Okay. One more scene. Um, I, I just want to get us in the text so that you'll find the reason a, a little bit um, I mean, the reading a little bit easier here. Go to um, one, I think it's 146. I 
Alyosha has gone home. He's met with Smerdyakov and his father and Ivan for a few minutes, and he sets off again to get to Katrina. Um, she has called him to her. She summoned him, and um, Alyosha doesn't know why. Um, on page 146, he comes to Katrina. He knows that from Dmitri that Dmitri once loved her, um, but pulled away. She loves him and wants to devote her life to him. So he comes, he's in her present, alone, apparently. 146 at the top. I've come, Alyosha muttered, confused. I, he sent me. Ah, he sent you. Well, that's just what I anticipated. Now I know everything, everything. Katrina Ivanovna exclaimed, her eyes suddenly flashing. Wait, Alexei. She'll tell you, first of all, I was so anxious for you to come. You see, I know perhaps much more even than you do yourself. It's not news that I need from you. <coughs> this is what I need from you. I need to know your own personal last impression of him. I need you to tell me directly, plainly, even coarsely, oh, as coarsely as you like, how you yourself see him now and how you see his position after your meeting with him today. She already knows everything about him. Um, she's, let's see, in the middle of the next page, um, in the middle of the page she says, last week I learned how much he needed and still needs money. I set myself only one goal, that he should know who to turn back to. No, he does not want to believe that I am his most faithful friend. He has never wanted to know me. He looks at me only as a woman. All week one terrible care has tormented me. How to make it so that he will not be ashamed before me because he spent those 3,000 rubles. I mean, let him be ashamed before everyone um, and before himself, but let him not be ashamed before me. To God, he says, he says everything without being ashamed. Why then does he still not know how much I can endure for him. Why, why does he not know me? How dare he not know me after all that's happened? I want to save him forever. Let him forget that I'm his fiance and now he's afraid before me because of his honor. He wasn't afraid to open himself to you, Alexei. Why haven't I deserved the same? Now, he, um, Alyosha says um, um, he may marry Grushenka at the bottom of 147, Katrina says, he won't marry her. I tell you, that girl, she's an angel. Um, the next page, the most fantastic of all fantastic beings. I know how bewitching she is, but I also know how kind, firm, noble she is. We've talked about reading so often, how people read each other. Now, just at that moment, Grushenka comes out from behind a, a partition, and the description of her is um, almost arresting. Be beguiling, bewitching. Middle of the page. Slowly she lowered herself into an armchair, soft, um, softly rustling her ample back, go down. What struck Alyosha most of all was her childlike face, open-hearted expression. Her look was like a child's, her joy was like a child's. She came up to the table precisely, joyfully, as if she were expecting something now with the most childlike, impatient, and trusting curiosity. Her look made the soul glad, Alyosha felt it, but there was something else in her that he could not and would not have been able to account for, but which perhaps affected him un unconsciously. Um, um, the, the description goes on to show that she's very 
much of that kind of Russian beauty that's peculiar, um, a, th a third of the way down 149. A, the beauty of a moment in a short passing beauty such as one so often finds precisely in a Russian woman. Um, and then um, the two women exchange <coughs> remarks. Grushenka says, or, or sorry, Katrina takes Grushenka's hand and kisses it three times. Um, and Kalio, um, Katrina says, Grushenka will always be faithful. She will never marry um, Dmitri because she's vowed that she won't. Um, Katrina kisses Grushenka three times, 150 towards the bottom. The latter offering his hand with a nervous, peeling, lovely little laugh, watched the dear young lady, apparently pleased at having her hand kissed like that, maybe a little bit too much rapture, flushed, flashed through Alyosha's mind. He blushed all the while. His heart was somehow peculiarly uneasy. Now, Katrina thinks is going to return, reciprocate the kiss. Um, how could I possibly make you ashamed, said Katrina, Ivanovna, somewhat surprised. Ah, oh, my dear, how poorly you understand me. But perhaps you do not quite understand me either, dear young lady. Perhaps I'm more wicked than you see on the surface. I have a wicked heart. I'm willful. I charm poor Dmitri Fyodorovich that time only to laugh at him. But now it will be you who will save him. You gave your word. You will make him listen to reason. You will reveal to him that you love another man, that you have loved him for a long time, and now he's now offering you his hand. Ah, no, I never gave you my word. It's you who are saying all that but I didn't give my word. Suddenly, Katrina, who, who's just had some relief in thinking she would be free to pursue <coughs> Dmitri, realizes she may not, the Grushinka may have designs on him. And suddenly the two women um, become vicious to each other and mean. And Grushinka acknowledges that there's something wicked in her. She may marry him or she may not. It's as if she's toying with him. And with that, she leaves. I just want to take a minute here with this and then stop. I want to come back to Next week I want to go back to the monastery scene and the arguments they make about church and state because it's so crucial. And I want to look again at some of these things. I want to ask some questions with you guys, but I want to do it from a different perspective. Um, so be sure you have those scenes down. The monastery scene where they talk about church and state, the Grand Inquisitor, you know, um, Yvonne's um, chapter called Rebellion, just, uh, and then I'm going to come back to these scenes because I, I want to look at them in another light. But before we go, characterize these three, the two women now with each other. Sorry if you've taken all this time in the text, but I really want to get us going in this story and the concrete stuff in it. So because it's really important to read this stuff closely. Describe these two women. <clears throat> Characterize them. I see Katrina as an enabler, basically. Somebody who loves somebody and keeps bailing out of problems and troubles. Or will in the future because of her love for this person. Um, just, you know, uh, blindly goes ahead and keeps trying to help this person. 
can you add anybody add anything to that? I think you're right on. I don't know that you can add anything to um, characterize your love. Can you can you relate des- describe what kind of love it is? Can you do that, Don? You called her a name. By the way, she hasn't they don't have a relationship yet. But so I think what Don's describing is what will be if they do get together. But I'm I'm just curious. So help him no matter what he does, you know, whatever his behavior is. Uh, what motivates her? In some ways, it's almost a motherly love. It's uh, I. I don't know that she sees the world as it really is necessarily, but as she wants it to be. Whereas I see uh, Trishenka, Trishenka as one who who probably has a better grasp on on the reality of of what life is, and 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 as a result, they're very much in conflict with how they see. Particularly the because there's situation. a man between them, yeah. I would they go ahead. don't see the bad. They don't see the, uh, the problems that they're creating. They uh, just uh, go ahead blindly. I Dimitri would say that says, she's... Sorry, go ahead, Doc. Dimitri says when he's talking with Alyosha, he's confessing all that happened with Katrina, Dimitri says she's not in love with me. She's in love with her own virtue. Right. Yeah. So I was going to say... What motivates her is her pride, the thought that she could do this. I mean, it, it, the, the way to describe that love is it's a love in pride, you know, or, or in love with her own. That is, that I can do this, that I will, that I will save him. I mean, that's why when you, when you first said she, she's a rescuer or enabler, I, I wanted to go to that line because her motive is to save him. It's for herself and her own pride, her image of herself. I think that most maidens think they can control the situation. You know, that's what their motivation is. They have control. Very often they do in some measure. I mean, they don't find, I mean, they lose it finally, but yeah. Think she's a woman, noble, proud, given to her pride. She doesn't see it. She's given to her passions. I mean, once again, this thing between the intellect and passions not coming together. Um, she's a very passionate woman. So is Grishenka, but I think my own sense of Grishenka is you're right that she has a a much more real and a more immediate experience of evil. She's experienced it, um, particularly with men. Um, Katrina's innocent in that respect, so she she lives in a more idealized world, mostly. F- so what she does, she will do for herself. No matter how much it appears, she's doing something for somebody else, to save somebody else. So much of what she's doing for herself. Any thoughts about Grushenka? Okay, let's see. One. Um, she's been damaged. Huh? You get the sense that she's been damaged. It's really interesting. Yeah, go ahead. Can you square it with the well, description? Not without, she, not without giving away some of the story. Her look was like a child's. Her joy was like a child's. There's a scent, a joyous, a chin. I mean, he goes on to say she has this extraordinary beauty, but it's the beauty of a woman that won't last as she ages. But all these descriptions of, of a beauty and an innocence to her face with. What you're describing, can you with, put with this? Whether is, is, is in conflict a little bit with her behavior in that, you know, she, you know when she, she has the exchange 
with Katrina where she says, no, that's, that's not what, that's what you said, it's not what I said. And you, you just get the feeling, I, I don't know, I, I get the sense there that there's, there's a lot more to the story that we haven't seen yet Boy. that has shaped yep. her personal, yep. you know, self. Yep, yep. And later you, you find out what that was, yeah. but at this point we don't know. Yeah. She's certainly more street smart. She's not yep. formally educated. Yep. She's yep. Uh, found her way in the world and how yep. to get what she wants. Yep, yep. She sees the world more clearly than Katrina does because she's experienced it. Mm -hmm. Yep. Let me just leave it here. What, if, I mean, I just picked out a couple of scenes. I want to go back to them for, for another reason, but I want to go forward to the um, rebellion um, Grand Inquisitor. I want to finish that section when we meet next week. So I'll go back to some of these. But meanwhile, just, just keep this in mind. Dostoevsky is a great reader of the human soul. He's presenting characters, and he never does it without giving some sense of spiritual underworlds, of hidden motives, spiritual. And what, what we experience is that so many of these people are lost, genuinely lost. Um, they're unsure about how to relate to each other. They misunderstand each other. Um, they don't read well. Um, something's happening, and the, and the background, the backstory to all of this are these radical changes that are taking place. Um, so just keep that in mind as you read forward. What I think what's coming up is going to be the Grand Inquisitor is a pretty powerful scene. Um, and you all know that we're heading towards some climax. It's, it's a ways off yet, but... Um, the characters kind of reflect what you might think would be the different experiences of the of the three different classes as a result of the chaos that ensued. Identify them. Well, it's just like well. Wait, Katrina, can you hold on a sec? Katrina, for example, maybe she reflects a little more of the landed class that suddenly has no land or at least no no people to run it. Mm -hmm. So she, it's almost like Gone with the Wind in Scarlet O'Hara mm -hmm. in a sense. You know where you 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 had this life that you've experienced for so long and all of a sudden it's not what it was before and you try to hang on to it but it becomes more and more difficult mm -hmm. and I you know whereas Krishinka for example you know seems to be on kind of the other other, other side of the, the rails if you will in a sense that she's kind of experienced some yep. of that harder life yep yep that yep. Katrina has not is just beginning to yep. experience just I, I want to go if hold on just just for a second if you think about people growing up in black neighborhoods in Detroit or Ferguson or go wherever you want to go, aware that they live in a culture of wealth, how easy would it be for anybody to resist the envy or pride in wanting to grab something because you feel like you don't have it and there's no reason you shouldn't have it just because you happen to be born into this world? And then get on, on another extreme, ideologues who think the answer to it is create this utopia world. You know, America's been a world of, of freedom, of possibilities for everybody, but it was never meant to be an enabling world. But we've got these huge discrepancies in our culture. So there's lots of similarities between what Dostoevsky's showing us in our world. But to go to the class thing again, just for a second, and, and we can leave here. I was thinking more particularly of um, Dmitri, Ivan, and Alyosha. Because in so many ways, Dmitri is a cast back to a soldier class, peasant class, feudal world. 
um, through his father. Ivan is a skeptic, absolute skeptic. Um, we'll see the nature of that skepticism shortly. And Alyosha is the one who goes back in some really pure form to Holy Mother Russia and, and Zosimov. So the three, the three brothers, in some sense, show the fracturing of a world. Um, they, they, they don't know each other. They have not known each other. They're only now in their young adult beginning to find out who they are. Dmitri and Alyosha have this talk that I just look at. Alyosha and Ivan are going to have a talk shortly. It's when um, Ivan's going to tell him the story of the Grand Inquisitor. And we're going to see the affinities and differences between those two brothers. But what we're seeing is the fruit of a, of a world fracturing, of this world breaking down. Family members not being able to talk, not knowing who they are, being formed by different ideas while this world is sort of spinning out of control. I don't know what's going on here now. Just thought we don't have our Bolshevik revolution in another 40 years. <laughs> <laughs>